class anyway, but after considering it, um, it's important to show a decent respect for the feelings and well-being of other people. Uh, we live in an age in which uh, symbols matter a great deal. Uh, Mr. Trump wouldn't, ha wouldn't lower the, ma the flag to half-mast for John McCain, and uh, um, yeah, that matters. I mean, showing respect matters and consideration. Uh, what I didn't want to do was give the impression that, well, granted, death is important, but nothing is more important than the great books, and actually that's not true. You know, that's just a fact. So um, we'll work some, some, something out so that we can handle it, but uh, I just thought it was the better part of valor to show a decent respect. Um, that being said, uh, how many of you read the Quran? Okay, um, this is different. Different in what respect? What goes on in the Quran? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of rules. Yeah. Um, a lot of commands. Okay. Yeah. Here's the deal. Both Judaism and Islam are legalistic religions. In other words, the holy men from each culture—the Jewish rabbis, the Muslim imams are essentially sacred lawyers. They find out what God demands of people, and then they work out an elaborate law, in the case of Islam it's called the Sharia, that governs every element of human life and society. So yeah, it's extremely legalistic. It's one of the peculiarities of uh, the monotheistic tradition that we see among the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. When they, work, when they have a peace conference in the Middle East to try and work something out between uh, the Jews and the, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. The Americans are usually there trying to be honest brokers. So they meet for morning, they discuss their differences, and they get nowhere. They adjourn for lunch. Come in. They adjourn for lunch, all right, and the Jews go out and eat kosher food, the Muslims go out and eat halal food, and the Christians go out and eat pork and shellfish. All right. <laughs> What's messed up about this? Well, it turns out that neither Yahweh nor Allah really goes for shellfish. All right. No lobster for you. All right. uh, the key thing is, is that Christianity is not a legalistic religion. All right. It's not that it doesn't have rules and laws, it's just that the focus isn't on the elaboration of law, right? In the way that it is with Judaism, right? If you think of the Midrash, the commentary on the Old Testament that's been written by the ancient rabbis, this just goes on for volume after volume after volume. Same sort of thing with Islamic law, all right? The Sharia is capable of a great deal of interpretation and extension. Christianity, on the other hand, is uh, not primarily legalistic. It's a religion of the spirit. It's supposed to change you internally. There's no set of rules you can follow that makes you a Christian. You have to have an internal transformation. You know? Remember the Ten Commandments? Well, Ten Commandments, you have to. But remember that he says, uh, uh, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. All right. Uh, consider, for example, uh, the Mosaic allowance for divorce. Jesus says, no, no, no. 
Right. You used to be able to get divorced. Now, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Um, Jesus is here to straighten out the law. All right. It's impossible to believe, to think of Muhammad or any of the later rabbis as fixing their law. All right. So, the law of love, in a broad general sense, is what Christianity requires. But that's uh, far from the emphasis on legalism you get in Judaism or Islam. Yeah. It's almost surprising that Christianity has been able to maintain some form of social cohesion without a uh, very legalistic social practice, because that's what kept the Jews together as a society, what keeps Muslims together as a society, is the common observance of these laws. Well, um, there were some common observances. Look, in other words, in uh, early medieval Europe, I mean, it took a very long time to Christianize it, but uh, the same mass that gets said in Italy gets said in France, gets said in Spain, right? One of the things worth considering is the, is the political context. The Jews, since 70 AD, which is quite some time, have been the diaspora. They, don't, they haven't had their own homeland, they ha- and they've been persecuted all across the world, all right? I mean, they're spread thin, but they manage to get persecuted everywhere, all right? Um, on the other hand, some of the places where they end up are quite remarkable. Um, there are um, in uh, in Western China, all right, there are Chinese Jews. I'm not making this up. They have the Hebrew alphabet and they still worship the Torah. Um, there are also black African Jews. Some of them are in uh, Ethiopia and were eventually airlifted out. They've been essentially isolated like most of Ethiopia, um, for 16 or 1800 years. You'll notice that Ethiopia also has a very archaic version of Christianity called monophysite Christianity. It develops in the second century, and then it just, it's like, a, it's like marsupials in Australia. They just, nothing comes in, nothing goes out, so it develops in its own weird way. Okay, there are not only Jews in Ethiopia, which were eventually airlifted out, and it was very hard to integrate them into into uh, Israeli society, but there are Jews also in South Africa, black Jews. Now, people said this was just a, a fluke or some kind of joke, or, you know, you're putting me on. Um, they have the Hebrew alphabet, and they have the Torah. Now, that's sort of a tip-off, but it's always possible, of course, that white Jews showed up there, gave, you know, kind of handed it off like a, a relay race, and said, you know, Torah, this is for you, we're on the way out. Alas, it turns out that they looked um, for a particular genetic marker on the Y chromosome. Uh, the Kohenim, people named Cohen, have a special status in Judaism. All right? um, there's all kinds of taboos, and especially they have special access to the Holy of Holies, but um, they can't do things like walk past an open grave and weird stuff like that. But the Kohenim have genetic markers on the Y chromosome, which is only passed from father to father. And damned if these black South Africans did not have this gene. So, well, well, no, think about the, the, the scattering of the lost tribes of Israel. This is long before the time of Christ. Um, give them a hundred generations, and they'll look like the locals, no matter what the locals look like. All right? So one of the, the things that I find most striking in history is the wildly improbable survival of the Jews. The Hittites were a thousand times bigger. Where are the Hittites now? They don't exist. The Jews, on the other hand, this tiny 
persecuted, rather squirrely group of people, um, well, they end up going all over the world and contributing extraordinarily to the world. The Jews are less than 1% of the total world population, quite a bit less than 1%. They've won 20% of the Nobel Prizes. What's not to like? I mean, they're doing something right. There's no getting around that. And uh, I think that it's the best argument for providence in history. I mean, what the hell are these people doing here? You know, these many thousands of years after they emerged from Egypt. A strange story in the history of the Jews. Um, the three Western monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all right, are all connected. All right. In some ways, um, you, I might be tempted to say that the definition of the West is monotheism. Some people would like it to be Christianity, but, uh, well, it seems to me that historically, um, Western monotheism, in the case of Islam, is derived from previous monotheistic traditions. Remember that Muhammad was illiterate? All right. And he was a trader and a raider, right? So he was a merchant. Remember that nothing grows in Saudi Arabia. So if you want to eke out a living, you have to do it either by stealing other people's stuff or, uh, or, or skimming something off the top as a trader and reseller, all right? That's what the historical function of Islam was for a very long time. It was the great mediator between the East and the West. Everything going one way or going the other way has to go through them and they charge a percentage to move it and protect it. Okay, so Islam is the last of the great Western monotheisms. I regard it as, as Western, but you know that's just me. Right. Depend. I mean, in other words, look, uh, it's a question. It's a family resemblance, <laughs> right? In other words, I don't think the West has an essence. I think they have a rough clump of ideas that they share in common. One of them is that there's only one God. And they're real particular in Islam about there being only one God. All right. Um, they don't have the great uh, creedal conflicts. There's no, nothing analogous to the early uh, discussions and disputes about Christology, for example. Is Jesus man? Is Jesus God? You know all the other questions pertaining to the nature of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. They seem to come at that a lot by saying there's not three gods, there's only one God. Well, actually, they have a point there, don't they? Yes. All right. To them, try, imagine. I mean, because they, look, they're strictly monotheistic. So if you want to become a Muslim, here's what you do: you have you have to affirm the faith, you have to adopt the creed, and then you're good to go. All right. Now here's what you have to do: is what you have to say and believe. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. You're ready to go. Ten seconds in and out. <laughs> All right. We don't have, I believe, in the Father, the Son, and the, no, no, none of that jazz. One God, Muhammad is his prophet. You're set. All right. Um, this is a quick study. Why? Because it appeals to desert warriors. It appeals to unattached young men. All right. With more testosterone than brains which is true universally. Right. Yeah. Is it that simple to become 
Muslim, yeah. you just... You say, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is a prophet, and you are a Muslim. You have to and not only like that, but if you're an apostate, you get killed. Huh. <laughs> you just go to the church and tell the... Mosque. The, yeah, well, that's the, mosque. the idea. Yeah. yeah, well, no, you don't have to go to a good church. You can say it in front of anyone, among your pals. Huh. Right, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet, I'm riding out in the morning. <laughs> wow. Okay. So what this is, is monotheism streamlined to the maximum extent. I mean, you can't get any more bare bones than Allah is God, Muhammad is a prophet, that's the end of the line. Now, when Christians or Catholics, take your pick, try and explain uh, Christianity to Muslims, they get to the Trinity and they say, look, there's only one God, but there are three persons in it. And the Muslims look at you and say, explain that to me. I said, well, look, there's just one, but there's three inside it. Oh. Well, how is that one? Well, it's not one in any of the usual ways which one is one. <laughs> Rather, this is more one in the sense that it's three. <laughs> and the Muslims go, look, uh, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're, po you're a polytheist. I mean, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Remember the ancient Jewish prayer? Well, one, it's very awkward to three-ify one, <laughs> right? Because, well, then it has the property of not being one. <laughs> and, I mean, even the most illiterate of our Muslim friends will say, well, I don't understand that. Now, here's your chance to go on and on and on and on getting nowhere. Right, you get further and further from where you start, but you don't get any closer to the end. It's like the decimal expansion of pi. Good luck with that. All right. But if you're not going to get any closer to the end, why go on that journey at all? Okay, you might as well stay home. So Islam is very particular about monotheism. All right. And uh, their beef with Christianity particularly the doctrine of the Trinity, um, is not a frivolous objection. All right. So, yeah. There is an interesting passage in the Quran, though, where Muhammad says, uh, if God had a son, I would be the first to worship him. Yeah, absolutely. So but the, God is far beyond having yeah, a son. So the, the, I guess it's, it, what's interesting about that is that there are there's a significant number of Muslims who end up converting to Christianity yes. because of the the connection between the two things. That's true. Absolutely right. Um, it's always possible, but it's always dangerous for Muslims because apostasy is punishable by death. I mean, all of Sharia law is in agreement with that. Yeah. And also, it seems like there's not really a New Testament in the Quran, so it's the punishment is always hell, eternal fire, burning, and mm -hmm. you see it over and over again through every, like, almost every single section. Wait, I'm saying the, it's a, the Quran. What did you What did you say? I, I just like it when people say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are fundamentally different. Uh, well, yeah, you I just, you see that more in the Old Testament. Is that correct? I mean, that's, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. In other words, Islam is much more like Judaism than it is like Christianity. It's a legalistic religion where the whole life, there's no difference between church and state or mosque and state. Politics and religion, after the ancient fashion, are completely bound up. 
and uh, it legitimizes governments as well, in the same way that Christianity legitimized governments in Western Europe. All right, now, the, Ro the Western Roman Empire collapses in 476 AD. That's the last of the Roman emperors. And then we're going until the reign of Charlemagne, which begins about 800, um, we're going to have a couple of centuries of chaos. All right, we're going to have uh, armed warriors uh, in tribal groups cruising around Western Europe, stealing and destroying and raping and pillaging and burning and doing all the stuff that the Vandals or the Ostrogoths or whoever do. All right? um, these are extremely primitive people, but Rome was not able to satisfactorily meet the danger on the uh, border. And the reason why there's a danger on the border, why all these Germanic tribes have decided that uh, the middle of the 5th century AD is a good time to invade Rome. One, well, because Rome is relatively weak and disorganized. But even more important is that there are cavalry armies, all right, uh, driven by the Huns, or, you know, made up of Huns, who are now pushing in from the central steppes of Eurasia. So they got a choice. They can stay there and fight the Huns, which nobody with any sense wants to do, or they can attack the decrepit Roman Empire. They make the smart move. All right. And so starting in 410, Alaric uh, is the first of the Germanic tri uh, tribal leaders to sack Rome. All right. This is when Augustine begins to write his City of God. And uh, the inheritor of that earlier Roman and Christian tradition <clears throat> is going to take some centuries to come online. In other words, war is chaos. It depopulates. Also remember that once there's no Roman government, there's no Roman law. And with no Roman law, nobody has property. It can be taken from you by any group of armed men at any time. Your family can be killed. You can be killed at any time. So what do you do? You don't stay in the fields because that's going to be a, a magnet for dangerous soldiers. What you do is you take off. You go to the swamps. You go to the mountains. You go to the impenetrable forests. You go to the worst area you can find. And with any luck, the soldiers won't get you there, won't kill you. But you're in a Hobbesian situation there. Because you go to sleep, you never know if you're going to wake up. Right? Now, eventually, it dawns on the leaders of these uh, warlike bands, right? these warlords, said, there's nothing to eat. You know, we burned everything that could be burned last generation. Now what am I supposed to do? I can't have my soldiers become farmers because A, they won't put up with it. But B, they don't know jack about farming. So what do we do? You send them out, and you have them round up rather than kill. And you have to actually make that explicit in your orders. You round up these people in the swamps and the hills and the mountains, and you bring them back. And then the warlord comes out and says, here's the score. All right? I didn't kill you for a reason. And people have figured that out already. And he said, look, here's the deal. Um, I want to start something new not the depredations and the uh, destruction characteristic of the first phase of the Germanic uh, invasions. Now what we need to do is establish with regularity all right, civilization again. 
And the way you do that is by offering these workers all right, um, a feudal a relationship. They'll be serfs, you'll be the lord. Now, the reason why they'll accept this and voluntarily accept it is because half of something is more than all of nothing. You're living like an animal in the swamp or in the mountains. The idea that you can get security for your family at a mere 50% tax on your labor because you have to give them half or a third, whatever it is, uh, of your harvest every year. Um, so what there is is reciprocity. The Lord gives you protection. He builds a castle, he's got a wall, he's got soldiers. When the bad guys come, you can come in there and then it's the job of the soldiers to fight it out. All right. In exchange for that, you give him the status of Lord and you give him a percentage of your crop every year. Uh, perhaps it'll be eventually turned into monetary terms or maybe it'll just remain in kind. But that's how, that's how feudalism develops in Western Europe. But the point is that's how feudalism develops everywhere. Feudalism is not unique to Western Europe. It's always a response to military chaos. Right? So, for example, Japan had feudalism. Why? Well, because the different warlords fought with each other. People said, I'm not going to stay here in a rice paddy and get myself killed. I'm going to take off. And then there's nothing to eat. So they have to do the same thing. You're going to see it in West Africa, too, when Islam moves in. There's a lot of death, a lot of destruction. What do you do? How do you get this back together? You create a feudal relationship between lord and peasant. All right? And the lord is backed up by his soldiers. They don't work in the fields. They do eat. But they are giving a service both to the lord and to the peasant. All right? Now, what happens in the history of Western Europe is that eventually this reciprocal relationship would actually make sense. In other words, each side gets something. And it's actually a smart thing to do because the warlord gets food he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And the uh, peasant gets security as well as a steady supply of food too. So what happens? Over time, all right, the reciprocity breaks down. The warlord of the year 600 is probably a useful guy to have around. On the other hand, the warlord in 1600, or the, actually the great, 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 great grandson of the warlord, 1600, he's not protecting you from anybody. He's just taking your money. He just takes the crop. All right. So what this means is that feudalism is a response to chaos and destruction. And when it settles things down, it will remain in effect and uh, necessary as long as there's an external military threat. So at first it's the German tribes, then a little bit later, starting around, 10, or starting around 800, it'll be the Vikings. Yeah. As you say, isn't, would this be very similar to the Peloponnesian War when they had to keep paying money to um, uh, Milos, the yeah. island of Milos, and then no, Milos had to, pay the money. had to pay the money to them, and they kept paying them, and then over time it was just rendered useless. And they just grew so big and they couldn't do anything about it. Well, that's right. But the problem is that eventually they, do, they are able to do something about it. What they right. are able to do about it is called the French Revolution. Remember Abbe says in the French Revolution, writes a panel called, what is the first estate? In other words, what are the people? And the answer is everything. And what are the clerics and the nobles? Nothing. So we're going to get rid of them. But that's the idea. Um, 
feudalism has ru had run its course, and once it's no longer reciprocal, sooner or later the people are going to notice that. In other words, reciprocity is required for stable political relationship relations in any society. So one of the successors to Western Roman Empire will be these Germanic kingdoms that gradually, over a period of centuries, Christianize. They Christianize in a very superficial way. All right. In other words, usually the pattern is that some missionary comes to these people and then gets himself martyred. Another one comes and gets himself martyred. They keep coming, though, which is the problem because they're not going to stop. Eventually, one of them succeeds in convincing the queen to become a Christian. It almost always is the king's wife. Now, once she becomes a Christian, she's baptized, she protects the uh, evangelist or the, 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 uh, the proselytizer, and then she talks the king into becoming a Christian. Once the king becomes a Christian, he then announces, everybody in my realm is a Christian, you're all going to have water on your heads. All right. The holy man's going to come here, say something you don't understand in a foreign language, and from that point on, we're all Christians. Now, we still pretty much worship trees, and uh, our <coughs> customs are pretty barbaric, but the water, that's the key thing. The guy says so. All right. So they have essentially no idea of what the, at least the average rank and file person has no idea what the sign on to. Groups of people generally define themselves in opposition to others. All right? And one of the things that was strange about Christianity is that it starts out as a pretty pacifistic religion. I mean, if you look at the sayings of Jesus and the doings of Jesus, there's not much there that's warlike. On the other hand, over the, a period of centuries, uh, Christianity gets faced with the possibility of being destroyed, first by Germanic barbarians, then by Muslims, and their response is militarized Christianity, which is a very strange thing. I mean, it's possibly latent, I guess, in uh, 384 when Theodosius makes Christianity the official state religion of Rome, which, you know, I don't know what to say about that, given the previous several centuries of being a despised and persecuted minority. But... Um, once they become part of the government, they begin organizing and institutionalizing the church more formally. It's going to be based upon the structure of the Roman Empire. Right. So one of the successors to Western Rome is Western Europe and the Germans. Another successor is the Muslims. They take North Africa, the Balkans, uh, the Eastern Med, and they extend from Morocco, and eventually they jump from Morocco to Spain. They took over all of Spain and Portugal. They're about two-thirds of the way through France, a, a century after the death of the prophet. So the big turning point in the expansion into Western Europe was the Battle of Tours, 732. And that begins a 700-year process of reconquista. We're gradually going to roll those Muslim cavalry armies out of Europe. Now, Islam is trying to take over and chops off chunks of the old Byzantine Empire. 
the old Eastern Roman Empire. And they operate in conflict for a number of centuries. And Islam gradually encroaches and encroaches and encroaches on the Eastern Byzantine Empire, okay, centered in Constantinople. It's the, what's left of the ancient Roman Empire. You know, this is the Eastern half. All right. What happens there is that Islam gets a shock. All right. Islam gets invaded. And it gets invaded, it's a strange bunch, by a bunch of nomadic cavalry armies that come from the center of Asia. You've heard this story before because it's the whole history of Mesopotamia for about 3,000 years. Every, every century or two, there's a big uh, population boom among these cavalry-oriented pastoral tribes. They unify under some great leader. And then they say, look, since we've unified amongst, with some great leader, Let's go get some of the easy meat. We can't steal from each other because we don't have anything, some horses and cows and goats. So what they do is they invade Mesopotamia. This is about 1270. It destroys the Umayyad dynasty in Baghdad, which is a great center of culture. And the people that invade Islam rip through because they are expert horsemen and they represent cavalry armies. And the Islamic armies are no match for them, which is true because the Islam is civilized, whereas these jokers are ruthless and dangerous, and there's a lot of them, and they're completely mobile. What that means is, is that they can go from one conquest to another, and they can move so fast that no messengers will escape to tell the next city. So as long as they say, look, we, we came, we saw, we conquered, and then we moved on, um, nobody's ready for them. And you know, if you're not ready for this, you're done. Okay. These people are called the Turks. The Turks do not begin in Turkey. The Turks begin in the center of Asia, in a place called Turkmenistan, meaning place where the Turks live. And uh, this is the last of the great cavalry invasions of Mesopotamia, which has been going on since 3000. Right. And it's largely determined by geography. So strangely enough, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, Islam, which expanded on the basis of the cavalry army, was overwhelmed by a different cavalry army. Right? Now, the Turks pushed closer and closer and closer to Byzantium. Right? And 1453, they are surrounding it. Right? They've already taken over all the rest of the Islamic world, all the way to Morocco, or actually in southern Spain. And uh, what turns the tide is the invention of gunpowder. The Muslims get it from the Indians, who got it from the Chinese. Gunpowder is just the thing we need. We knock down the walls. That's the end of, this, of uh, the Byzantine Empire. Okay? So we have three successors to the Western Roman Empire. Western Christianity, Islam, and then for a while we have the Byzantine Empire, but that eventually collapses. The Turks take that over. What the Turks do when they overwhelm Constantinople is they change the name to Istanbul, they turn the great cathedral into a mosque, and they establish the Ottoman Empire. 
Anybody know when the Ottoman Empire breaks up? 1900s. 1919 with uh, the Treaty of Versailles. That's a big portion of why jihadis today are so pissed off because they think that the caliphate was destroyed by Westerners in 1919. That's what fractioned up uh, Islam into different states and that's what they're trying to undo. Okay. Now what do you think, I mean you got a chance to read the Quran, what did you notice about it? Or what did you notice wasn't there? Yes? It read a lot like the Psalms. That's interesting, why? Would you be tempted to sing this? <laughs> no, but it was just like the way they were broken up and like the way, um, like the, it was more like a first person story almost, okay. um, which is what, I don't know, it just read a lot like the Psalms and the Bible to me. Like not a singing sort of thing, but very like story. Okay. Um, it's meant to be a first person recitation. The angel comes down from God, uh, meets Muhammad in a cave on a regular basis. He comes back and tells people what has been told to him. He is illiterate, so he can't write it down, but they write it down. One of the things that Islam is most proud of is the fact that they say that their scripture is pristine. In other words, there was no period of generations or centuries, in some cases, for the Old Testament, in which stories got told and retold and tra- transformed in various ways. Yeah. I just have a question about that. Good. Um, weren't the Quran, like, wasn't there a time when they were all gathered together and all burned? Uh, not that I know of. If it were all burned, it's hard to see how this would be here. Right. I just remember I was talking to my brother over Christmas break, and we were talking about this, and he said there was some point in history when they were all taken together and burned. Okay, that I'm not familiar with. Okay. All right. What did you notice when you read the Quran? It's supposed to do something to you, yeah. The, the twin ideas of one God and complete submission to him. Yeah, okay. In other words, um, it has a pretty small number of fairly well-defined ideas and it repeats quite a bit. You probably have noticed that God knows, and that Allah knows everything. And strangely enough, the, the word for God, Allah, is the same word for God that's used by Egyptian Coptic Christians. In other words, no, they live in an Arab-speaking culture. So when they talk about God, they talk about Allah. This leads to all kinds of confusions as to whether Yahweh is Jesus, is Allah. It's a mess. Um, What else do you notice? Yeah. Uh, The the anti-Trinitarian doctrine. Um, He says, uh, say not three, and that God does not take a son. Um, Yeah, he would say, um, it's hard to have a son without a mother. And then you get into the amazing whirlpool of what it means to be begotten, not made. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, their their creation is a little different. Like they kept referring to from dust, then to germ, then to blood clot. And I was kind of confused on what that. Yeah, it's uh, the symbolic. Yeah, it's a. Uh, um, it's just a fairy tale. Okay. Right. Um, but the idea is that Allah is behind everything, and Allah is different from uh, the God of Christianity in the sense that Allah is pure will. All right. So in other words, he's not restrained by reason. That's thought impious and kind of Greek. And in a way it is, actually. 
not impious, but kind of Greek, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it says like many, many times that um, the way they put down apostates and that if they, mm -hmm. they have to keep torturing them or else they'll go back to their right, right. sinful ways. Uh, apostates are dealt with harshly. So the, the idea is that this is an ideology that ratchets up. Once it has gotten you to say there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is the prophet, you're in. And you can't get out. In addition to that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no go ahead. Okay. Um, it, it struck me a lot as I was reading it that there's a lot of talk of like you have to accept the truth and like be be willing to embrace uh, the word that's given here. But also, there were a number of passages that made it sound like there is no human free will, and it was like God has either opened your heart or He has not, and the ones that He hasn't, He's like they're going. And so I was kind of. Well, this is tricky, and um, the problem of free will and determinism is an abyss. <laughs> but let's jump in, just for the sake of discussion. Um, what about the passage in Exodus, where Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart? <laughs> uh, we're... Christians, like us, for example, are likely to accept that as a canonical piece of scripture. Good luck disentangling this. And In other words, in what sense is Pharaoh blameworthy if he didn't have any choice? I mean, Yahweh's just making a point, and Yahweh plays rough. Okay. Um, why, for the twelfth of the plagues that come to Egypt, why do we have to kill the firstborn son of all the Egyptians? Since, after all, these firstborn children didn't do anything. <laughs> they didn't. And, and what sense does that make? Right. I mean, there's all kind. I mean, granted, there's all kinds of bizarre stuff here, and the more you look, the more you find. But if you do a serious examination of Christian scripture, um, the New Testament is actually a, a pretty coherent whole. But the Old Testament is a fantastic collection of really peculiar stories. Right. Yeah. If. Islam agree, uh, disagrees with Christianity so much. Why do they pull? Why does it seem like they pull from the scriptures so much, like using like Moses and okay. all? Because the idea is this: Muhammad gets access to Jewish and Christian traditions as he moves from oasis to oasis or from port to port uh, with his camel caravan carrying goods. So you sit down around the fire, you talk to Jews, you talk to Christians. Uh, many of these Christians may be what we regard, what we regard as heretical Christians today. All right. And uh, Judaism was not nearly as well organized then as it is now. All right. So instead of talking with learned scholars, he talks to whoever it is that's around the campfire buying and selling stuff. And he gets a garbled version of both Jewish tradition and Christian tradition. And uh, you can see why he's going to have problems with things like uh, the Trinity. Right? It's hard. I mean, look, when a learned professor explains the Trinity, I usually fail to understand, generally speaking. But at least there's something there to work on. Imagine your average person, who may or may not be even literate, explaining the Trinity to Muhammad. Look, God had a son, but there wasn't any 
woman involved. Well, that's a different way of coming into existence. Um, what's that like? Is it, oh, it's not being made, it's being begotten. Oh. Well, that clarifies matters, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the reverence given to the saints is also um, criticized. They say, like, as for those who set up other patrons beside him, uh, Allah saying, we serve them, but then they bring us nearer to God. They don't think that there should be any saints there. There are holy men, but they are not objects of our veneration. Right? Instead, they are doing the will of Allah. Allah will take care of them once they die. Also, the view is in Islam that once you die, all right. You step outside of time, right? which means that the next thing you, that you experience after you die is the final judgment of God. So it's no way. Right. Yeah? Oh, I was just going to say, um, there's really no problem in here with the um, uh, virgin uh, birth uh, right. of Christ. If, well, look, you know, if God wants uh, a virgin to have a child, she will. But God's in charge. Right. Uh, it turns out that in Islam that God loves things for his own special reasons and he doesn't love them because they're good they're good because he loves them so Allah is perfect will right? so it means that Allah if he wanted to could contradict himself As the Quran right it means that Allah is capable of changing his mind. Right. It means also that if God had wanted to invert the Ten Commandments, in other words, if you want to say, thou shalt steal, thou shalt kill, thou shalt commit adultery, he could have done that too. There's nothing intrinsic to those things. In other words, the Catholic and Christian view is that God loves things because they're good. The Islamic view is that they're good because God loves them. So it's purely an act of will. Yeah? Is that part of the reason it's such a legalistic religion? Uh, that's like an, uh, an aspect of it being a legalistic religion, yeah. What God says goes, there's nothing to argue about. Well, yeah? Wouldn't we disagree? Like, Christianity says God loves things because they're good, but aren't things, like, evil because of original sin? Uh things are reasonable because of original sin. My sense is, is that murder or rape or adultery or uh, theft were probably bad even before um, we had original sin, I guess. Even before the Garden of Eden, murder was an evil. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, just simply in terms of, of the Christian and the Jewish understanding, God created all things good and, and evil is, a, I guess, a, a deviation therefrom. Okay. So, if we go back to well, it's going to leave you with problems about how it is that God creates a universe from which things spontaneously deviate. Good luck with that. All right. So I don't doubt that people are free, and that somehow, and that people do evil sometimes, and that somehow God is not responsible or the author of these evil. I don't exactly know how to finesse that out, Paul. Reminded a lot of the Homeric epics mm. from from these laws. You have, you know, if a man is slain unjustly, his heir shall be entitled to satisfaction. Okay, very good. This is monotheism for desert warriors. All right, they have a particular public in mind for this. 
young men between, let's say, 16 and 30, limited attachments, who are able, once we conquer their city, we can say to them, you're a likely looking fellow, you're a good fighter, join us, become a Muslim. You say, well, um, what's the advantage of that? And they say, well, one, we won't kill you, and two, we won't kill your family, and three, we're going to attack the next city over, and you can come with us and get a slice of the pie. And if you die, up to heaven you go. And Islamic heaven is what you would expect of a religion for desert warriors. It's green, and it's a lush garden, it has a river that runs through it, it has water. All right? Look, if I were writing scripture for Eskimos, I would tell them that heaven is really warm, and you can have those sweet rum drinks and kick back. <laughs> right? um, you got to know your audience. Judaism is monotheism for lawyers. All right? In other words, it's the Torah, it's the law. There are 613 requirements for an observant Jew in the Torah. The great rabbis have actually literally gone through it, word by word, line by line, and 613 is the exact number of obligations. Right. Look, these guys know what they're doing. Also, the amount of mental horsepower that the Jews have used in uh, working out exegesis of the Old Testament if they had been doctors, they would have cured cancer by now. I mean, the amount of mental horsepower that's gone in, that the Jewish rabbis, remember that these guys start studying this when they're seven, all right, and they get old enough to have much longer gray beards than me. So here you are at 80, still studying the same thing, but you have some new ideas about it because this has taken 73 years, you know. They got into the habit of counting words. Yes, of course they did. No, that, uh, that's absolutely essential because of the numerology. Oh no, I mean, that's not an accident by any means. Yeah, you're right. Um, they can tell you what the exact middle of the Old Testament is. Of course, of course. Um, as a matter of fact, since they, they don't have a separate set of symbols for numbers, the Old Testament is a gigantic number. That's different, okay. Uh, so the stuff that they pull out of this is truly amazing. Uh, some of it is obvious, other is very, other is very counterintuitive. Right? For example, in Leviticus it says, you're not allowed to boil a kid in its mother's milk. Just like mom used to make. <laughs> boil a kid in its mother's milk. Who the hell would want to take goat milk and boil a small goat in it? What the hell's wrong with you? The answer is that it's actually an ancient Canaanite religious sacrificial practice. That's why you're not allowed to do that. But later rabbis have decided that you can't mix dairy and meat, and that's what it means. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's an improbable reading, but that's the reason why kosher kitchens have to completely separate dairy and meat. Because it reminds the rabbis of boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Don't pick a quarrel with these guys. They know a lot more about the new to the old testament than you do. Yeah. What did they make of like virtue and vice and like earthly pleasures? Earthly pleasures are given by Allah, so you're allowed to have them, provided you don't violate any of the rules in the book. And uh, earthly pleasures are part of what drives the Zan, because um, as in the case of the Iliad, as Paul pointed out, 
women are markers of status. You can accumulate as many concubines as you want. You can have up to four wives. Muhammad himself, I think he had six or seven different wives. Eight. One of whom was nine years old. Wow. Well, that's bizarre. Okay, but the point is, um, the, one of the great things that, uh, about uh, the Quran is that uh, Muhammad says a number of times, uh, there are rules for all believers, but, and then there are a special set of rules for me. <laughs> Allah has spoken. <laughs> yeah. My favorite example of this is at one point he wants his cousin to marry a particular woman, right. and he, the cousin doesn't want to marry this woman, and then the next day Allah reveals to Muhammad that if you are a true believer, you must do whatever Muhammad says. There we go, that makes sense. It gets better because later the man divorces this woman, and Muhammad wants to marry her, but it's kind of impolite to marry someone that you're related to distantly. There are so, laws about that. So just a, a couple days later, Allah reveals to Muhammad that uh, <laughs> that because the cousin was adopted, it's not really a familial relation. It's not a blood relation. So yeah, it's okay. totally fine for him to marry this woman. Okay. Um, heaven is going to be really green and lots of water and we're going to chill and it's going to be really won't even be hot. No sand. None of that stuff. Okay. Um, what does the Quran say about women and family? Women and children? Yeah? It gives them a, admittedly low fixed status. That's right. Okay. It's actually a, a raising of their status uh, given the, is, the uh, Arabic culture that they have there. Yeah. generations and has you know, been the core of millions of the lives of millions of people, they must be doing something right. In other words, that doesn't happen by accident. Right? So they are creating a kind of moral order. The moral order that is most useful to a warrior religion. Yeah. So since they, they're pretty strict on the Quran and they believe mostly everything they say, like mm -hmm. um, it says in one part on the chapter of women, it says, Good women are obedient. As for those whom you fear disobedience, admonish them, forsake them in beds apart, and beat them. Would they still, like, hold that yeah. as it's, it's acceptable to yeah. just beat them? Well, you've got to remember, um, this is, it's, what's different and unique here is the contemporary West. For most of human history, the adult male head of household has had um, life and death control over the people, and much less beating them. Uh, a Roman father, if his son sasses him, can have him killed, and with no legal penalty. Right? So you have to remember that throughout most of history, the adult male head of household will beat his slaves, but he will also beat his wife and children. Everybody gets a beating. And then between adult male heads of household, there are usually very formal rules for dueling where they kill each other. Right? Which is true, say, in the antebellum South, but it's also true in ancient Islam. All right. What are you supposed to do with orphans? 
Don't touch their wealth, but to increase it. Don't steal from them. That's right. Why is that important? In other words, I don't see all that much about orphans and their patrimony in the New Testament. Why? I mean, stealing from orphans is bad there, too. Yeah. There are a lot of orphans left over. That is the key point, yeah. A warrior religion is going to have a tremendous proliferation of orphans. Remember that that individualism has not been invented yet. Society is understood to be made up, at the very minimum, of families. Now, when daddy dies, you have an unattached woman and her children. They have no means of support. It's not like she can get on a horse and go engage in jihad. That doesn't happen. All right? So the question is, what are we going to do with these unattached women and children? And the answer is, we're going to create the only great world religion that features polygamy. There's a reason why neither Christianity nor Buddhism uh, allows for polygamy. And the reason is that they don't have nearly as many unattached women and children because they're not warrior religions, right? Yeah? Well, explain what polygamy features so prominently in the Old Testament. That's right. Well, it's very clear in the Old Testament they don't have the idea of monogamous marriage. The patriarchs could take a number of wives and a number of concubines, and, you know, that's the way it was. Right? Uh, think of uh, Hagar, Right, various women that get dismissed. And uh, what we're going to see here is a large number of fragmented families that are pulled together under a general paterfamilias. So he could have up to four wives and an infinite number of concubines. He is capable of fathering children by all of them and is responsible for all of them. If he marries a woman whose husband has died, he has to do right by those children. In other words, he can't take their inheritance and you know, say, look, you know, I lost it or I forgot it. You have to make, you know, that you have a, a religious obligation to take care of other people, other men's children, and other men are gonna have an equal obligation to take care of yours. That actually makes a lot of sense. So the emphasis on doing right by orphans and the uh, creation of polygamy as an established status that makes good sense, given the fact this is a warrior religion. Yeah? So how does that translate into, I guess, into the state of um, uh, predominantly Muslim states? That it's like, do they have to remain in a, uh, like a warlike culture in order to use the Quran? Well, um, all, well, um, Islam is the most warlike of the great world religions. Christianity became one of the most warlike of the great world religions, but didn't start out that way. Islam started out that way. Uh, Muhammad was a traitor and a raider. Uh, At one point, he was opposed by the Jews in Mecca. They captured Mecca, he captured the Jews, and he beheaded 800 of them. So theft and widespread death, that's how Islam began. Now the idea is that once Islam overwhelms the world, which is what they expect to do, it'll never be able to ratchet back. Every individual who, say, who says there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is a prophet, you're in and you can't get out. It also, they also hold the view that any 
land which has been conquered by Muslims, even if the non-Muslims chase them out and take, take over it, it still belongs to Islam. <clears throat> That's the big problem that today's jihadis have with Spain. They don't call it Spain, they call it Al-Andalus, which is the Muslim term for it, and they think that it belongs to them. Okay, so Islam ratchets up, never ratchets back, and the job is to take over the world. One of the big problems in the Islamic world today is that you have a lot of poorly educated people who believe on the basis of their scripture and their religious tradition that God has organized the world such that they should be running it. But they realize, after a quick look around, that not only are they not running the world, they're essentially irrelevant to the world. Nietzsche said that Christianity is the religion of resentment. That's because he lived in a different century. My view is that in the 21st century, Islam is the religion of resentment. These are poor countries all right, that produce nothing and contribute next to nothing to the world. All right. Apart from petroleum, they don't export anything. They don't publish books. They don't contribute what the West is contributing, or has contributed and is contributing. So Islam is a religion of resentment and it is going to impose itself by force. Yeah. Is that largely why still today they're, the terrorist attacks and like everything that they're doing, they're still trying to take over the entire world? Because yeah, they believe that the that's crime. exactly what they're, that they're trying to do. Yeah, that's yeah. why they're going to bring down the small state in Israel and the great state in the U.S. Mm. Wow. Right. Always remember, it's something we're thinking about, Terrorism is the weapon of the weak. All right. You choose to fly planes into the World Trade Center because you don't have cruise missiles or ICBMs. Right. So terrorism presents problems, but none of those problems are insuperable. Yeah. Um, what about the people that would say part of the religion is peaceful and um, that's true. Part of, so. How does it? How does that really differentiate if if the Quran is saying be like more like a military militant like religion? Well, um, if you comb through Christian scripture, you will find various kinds of justifications for anger or for outrage or for violence. Yeah, it is slightly different. There, there are specific circumstances under which God, Yahweh gives permission to His people to display. Uh, Allah says just universally. Okay, yeah, you do have to fight the unbeliever. Um, on the other hand, have a look at the book of Joshua sometime. Yahweh says, uh, why don't you go into the promised land, kill everything you find there. Again, I mean, there's a, there's a similarity, but it's not a universal statement. It's a, at this particular time and place, you're welcome to do this. Okay, yeah, the idea is for the Islam, they've just expanded the promised land into the whole planet. But it's been promised to Islamic believers. And the fact that now, look, if it were not for petroleum, the Islamic world would have the, amount, the clout in international politics that we find in sub-Saharan Africa. In other words, 
they, they just don't matter. They're irrelevant for the most part. The only thing that makes the Islamic world important is petroleum. Right? The problem is that we're going to eventually move from fossil fuels. The petroleum is, is eventually going to run out. And when it does, these countries will prove themselves to be poor. Here's why. The wealth of a country is not in the ground. It's not gold or oil or uranium or any of that. The wealth of a country is in its people. A well-educated people who have developed, and this is something you get from culture, developed a strong work ethic is a rich country no matter what you do to it. Remember what happened to Nazi Germany at the end, in 1945? I mean, it was bombed flat. They had lost a big chunk of their population, and it was a total chaotic mess. 20 years later, 1965, we get the German Wirtschaftswunder, which means economic miracle. They were as rich in 65 as they were in 35. What the hell's going on here? The answer is they have the best educated workforce in Europe, and they work like beavers. Okay. If you don't have a work ethic, and there's nothing even remotely approximating that in the Islamic world, I mean, the, the studied leisure is what you would expect of a military caste. Right? And uh, knowledge is largely restricted. Well, first of all, knowledge is work. All right? You can't get it without working, and most of them don't want to get involved with that. Those that do, um, surprisingly enough, uh, a lot of their degrees, a lot of their study is Islamic studies. So a third of all the PhDs in Saudi Arabia are certified in Islamic studies. What that enables them to do is to go to madrasas all over the world and raise up new jihadis. Uh, Wahhabism, which is a kind of subset of, of Islam, uh, it's about 300 years old. It's roughly what Puritanism was to Christianity. Imagine that Puritans become institutionalized and reproduce themselves and are very influential in, in intellectual life. That's really dangerous. That's what keeps the Saudis on the throne. They keep throwing money at the Wahhabis, and the Wahhabis shut up and don't destroy the kingdom. All right. Um, there's a an important issue in contemporary politics pertaining to the Quran. That's the status of jihad. All right? Jihad is generally and correctly translated as holy war. And here's where things really get different from Christianity. Um, Christianity wants you to turn the other cheek and stuff like that. There's nothing in the Quran to that effect. Instead, you have to fight the unbelievers here and now and everywhere and every time. Right? Yeah. There was. I did think that at first. And there was one line that, that had that phrase that. Um, but then on page three thirty six, there was a line that said, "Good deeds and evil deeds are not equal. Requite evil with good, and he who is your enemy will become your dearest friend." Yeah. So. That's that, actually good advice. Right. Um, remember that all the great scriptures of the world contradict themselves. I know it sounds funny, but think of it this way. Um, the logic of ethics and the logic of mathematics are not the same. Check it out. Um, there's only one answer to the question, two plus two equals, the answer is four, univocal. But 
suppose I were to ask you on, uh, on the basis of the Bible, does God endorse love and does he endorse it universally to everybody or only to somebody? Yeah, well, uh, it, not if you look at the book of Joshua, is it? It doesn't look like the Philistines are being loved to death. Oh, or on the other hand, if you look at the book of Hebrews, where it says that God wills all men to be saved. Okay. So that's, that's where things get confused. Okay, but if I understand it, God is in charge of history, and he created those Philistines knowing that they were never going to find out about Yahweh, and then he ordered the Jews to kill them. And then if I understand correctly, they end up in hell? Okay, one imagines that they have immortal souls and end up somewhere. I looked in vain in Dante's Inferno to find a location for them. I didn't see a location for them anywhere, except that, of course, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent is in paradise. That's another set of problems. Um, but think about this. Think about the logic of ethics. I'll give you two ideas. He who hesitates is lost, and look before you leap. Those are contradictory statements. Okay, which one of them is wrong? Situational. Exactly, in a way that mathematics is not. You can't say, look, two and two is four under some circumstances. Four all the time. In other words, moral judgment is context sensitive. It's not completely defined by it, but you have to be aware of the context in which you're doing stuff. All right? Shooting people to death is a moral evil. On the other hand, if you're in an army and in a firefight, well, fire away. All right? So the point then is this. It is possible for moral rules to be overtly contradictory without being mistaken in a way that purely mathematical logic isn't. So, of course, the Quran is going to say, look, show respect and kindness and benevolence to other people. Give alms to the poor. All right? Don't oppress the orphan. Okay. It's also going to say, destroy unbelievers wherever you find them. All right? And, of course, all idol worshippers have to be killed. And what that means is Hindus, which is the, part, the reason why there's such a long tradition of hatred and rage between India and Islam. All right. They come in through northern India and they slay um, vast numbers of people and they destroy what they regard as idol worship because they have various, it's a polytheistic archaic tradition. And uh, then, even more interesting, they upend Hindu social structure by extending Islamic believerhood to the untouchables. <laughs> that mess things up. Yeah, it does. That's why today in Pakistan and Bangladesh, which are primarily Muslim countries, these are the great 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 grandchildren of untouchables. All right. This is part of the conflict. Remember that a Brahmin, the uh, laws of the Vedas are so strict that. A Brahmin cannot be touched by the shadow of an untouchable. If he does, he has to go engage in a purification ritual. The idea that there's a country full of these people, 
right? And they're threatening the border in Kashmir. You have a real set of problems there. And both India and Pakistan are, nu are nuclear armed. It's a mess. Okay. Um, let's see. We're going to have to be ready for the end of the world. It could happen any time. And eschatology figures very heavily in here. Right? You have to have a final judgment. And the final judgment is, is instant. As soon as you die, uh, you step outside of time. So however many more centuries there are before Allah cashes in everybody's chips, you go directly to go. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Show up and get your reward. Right. Mm -hmm. I just have a question about like the um, like the different books and the chapters. Yep. Where do they get the names from? Traditional names. Okay. Um, often the name doesn't have any obvious connection to what's going on there. That I don't know why. Right. Yeah. They also have letters at the beginning of every one that no one exactly knows what they mean. Have a look at the book of Psalms and look up Selah. Mm -hmm. No one knows what that means either. Or even better, there are various Psalms that have uh, separate statements at the beginning of them, stuff like, um, according to the lilies. Okay, what might that mean? Nobody knows. Maybe the lilies was a song and you were supposed to sing that to the, the tune. I don't know. Nobody knows. All right. These are called hapaxes. A hapax is a single example of a word or term. And they show up in the weirdest places. Right? And the problem is, of course, that when you have only one or something, you're trying to figure out what rule this represents. And the problem is, since you only have one example, it, you know, uh, it's like playing, uh, playing a literary criticism with deuces wild, right? because, well, um, something that only gets used once, you can attribute whatever you want to it. Right? There are hapaxes in the Bible. There are also hapaxes in the Quran. There are hapaxes in Mayan glyphs. You know, those things carved into rocks. And there are hapaxes in both Dante and Shakespeare. All right. In other words, we only have one of these. And we looked around at all the other uses in English, for example, around that time and before and after that time. And no one ever uses the word. What are we supposed to do with that? Nobody knows. All right. Hapaxes are what Wittgenstein called the single example of the use of a rule. And a single use of a rule isn't very much like a rule if you stop and think about it, because it doesn't have any of that regularity. So hapaxes are a funny entity. I'd be tempted to say that there are some things in human history, there's only one example of it, and it's not really like anything else. The crucifixion and resurrection. There's only one of them. Right. What interpretation we give it turns out to be so various. Look at the various uh, extensions of Christianity and how they, they view the life of Jesus. Right. Same sort of thing with the Buddha under the bow tree. He says, look, I'm not going anywhere until I get enlightenment. Sits there for three days without moving. Says, now I have enlightenment. Well, what exactly does that mean? In other words, what's going on that you sit under? Is it, does it matter what tree it is? If you sat under an oak, would it likely be different? <laughs> right? Or would it likely be lighter or darker? I mean, how does this work? And the problem is there's only one of them, too. Yeah. Um, I'm just off 
they're separate thing. I'm still kind of stuck on this idea of how they contradict themselves. Like they would say, um, "Do not require evil with good." Yeah. Um, but then they then the Islam will go and say, "Conquer everybody, spread the religion." What's the difference between Christianity justifying their war and saying stuff like "Turn the other cheek" and then Islam? There's no difference. So, how could we say that their um, militarism is bad, but ours is not? Well. Um, Ours got forced on us. In other words, Christianity begins as a religion of slaves. It has no military component. It gradually extended across the trade routes in the Mediterranean. Um, once Christianity becomes the Roman Empire's official religion, they essentially are backing now with the authority of the church uh, Roman government and Roman military. When that breaks down and we get uh, the barbarian invasions of Rome, um, Christianity is going to have to be made applicable to these new groups of people like the Vandals or the Ostrogoths or the Jutes or the Saxons or the Angles. And in order to do that, it has to have a military component because these are uh, wild and uh, violent men. Yeah. I think there's a genuine difference between the Muslim and the, 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 the very least, at least the Catholic doctrine. So if a Catholic uh, came out into the public scene today and said, uh, I have gotten a vision from uh, God that I need to conquer Mexico, mm -hmm. any bishop worth his salt will uh, brand him as a heretic and yep. get him dealt with quickly. If a Muslim comes up and says, uh, Allah has told me to conquer America, good Muslims are like, well, maybe he did, uh, we're going to have to look into this. Okay. Um, on the other hand, somehow Catholicism managed to look the other way when Cortez runs through Mexico. They also had the, oh, I always heard the name of your favorite priest. Uh, oh, De Las Casas, Father De Las Casas. De Las Casas. That, he that, kicks butt. That's a genuine possibility in Christianity when it's not necessarily a genuine possibility. Again, yeah. the Cortez, like, even though Christianity didn't look the other way, if they had been looking, if. If someone had called them on their doctrine, they would have had to condemn Cortez. Okay. If someone had called Muslims on their doctrine, they couldn't have condemned Cortez. Okay. Well, someone did call them on their doctrine, which would be Father de las Casas. Yes. He actually got an audience before the king and queen of Spain. And there was once, he said, look, the stuff that's going on there is outrageous. We're torturing people and killing people and murdering people. And we're doing everything we can to extract money from them. And the conduct, I mean, it, what you would like to, what you should take a look at if you get the chance, is De Las Casas' History of the Indies. And the stuff that goes on there is, I mean, it's in the Nazi League of Violence and Torture and Murder and Terror. Um, it turns out that Christianity is capable of bringing these guys to the bar. Unfortunately, it's not, it turns out not to have been capable of convicting them. Instead, they said, well, we thought through it now, and it turns out Jesus wants us to take over Latin America, to take over South America. So, yeah, I think that there are contradictions, there are tensions in any great scripture. All right? uh, to demand perfect logical precision, that's something we'll get when we get a little later in history. Now, uh, what we get is a suggestive and powerful and stimulating work. Yeah. I found it really interesting when I was reading through this because there were certain parts, especially 
in the beginning, before I had like, kind of gotten into the group of reading it, that I was really skeptical of certain things or just taking kind of a harsh approach to it. And I realized that that would probably be how I would approach reading the Bible had I never heard mm -hmm. the stories before. Uh, and it was just a really interesting perspective to have. Because there's all kinds of weird stuff in the Bible. Uh, you know, particularly in the Old Testament, but the, there's also strange parts in the New Testament as well. And if you come with a malignant spirit, you will find nothing satisfactory in any scripture. On the other hand, if you offer the same degree of consideration to other people's scriptures that you do to your own, you'll find stuff to like and dislike. You'll be able to weigh and consider it. Yeah? If we get back to the problem of faith and reason pretty dang quickly, that is the, the only way to uh, have a, a debate among religions is to appeal to reason. But probably a good Muslim would say, I don't think we can appeal to reason to solve this problem. Okay. Um, that's certainly true. Um, it's hard for me to see how um, reason would solve the problem of, say, the Trinity for Christians. Aquinas gave an attempt. It was quite interesting. I, I'm impressed because, not because I think it's successful, because I think that you really have to have, have, to have some chops to even try such a thing. And, you know, you've got to admire the guy for that, you know? So I think why also some of the sort of mixed messages about Jews and Christians have to be in the Quran is it's part mm -hmm. of Muhammad's inoculation of Islam. It, the idea is just individual Muslims could convert away. I mean, obviously, they could become apostates, but at, a, at an intellectual, it just doesn't mix with anything else. It doesn't allow for it. That's right. You, know, you have to suspend all prior belief and all prior obligations. That's certainly true. Think about the idea of jihad. Nowadays, particularly in America, there are those who, are tr who have been trying to sell the idea that jihad is peaceful. Let me explain to you how they got that. Um, in the Muslim tradition, jihad is holy struggle or holy war, but it has both an internal and an external aspect. Internal jihad is the struggle within your own soul, because people don't naturally want to do what Allah tells them to do, which is why Allah went to the trouble of telling them. All right? So, um, to force yourself to give alms when you would rather keep it, to force yourself to, sit, to uh, go to war when you would rather stay home. Um, these things are obligatory, and they represent an inner, internal spiritual struggle. And to be honest, I mean, there are lots and lots of passages that deal with jihad, and at least some of them are, in fact, an internal struggle. That's part of it. Now, the apologists for Islam in contemporary America, for the last 20 or 30 years or so at least, have been trying to sell the idea that that's what jihad is, and that Westerners who think it's holy war are wrong. In fact, it's, a, it's an internal spiritual matter. Now, the problem with that is that they're doing their best to pretend that this is not a war-like book. In the first place, you can argue about the meaning of particular passages, but it's much harder to argue about tone, read the New Testament, then read the Quran, and ask yourself how different they are in tone. And the tone is astonishingly different. That you're not going to get back. There's nothing, in, I mean, blessed are the peacekeepers. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Allah wants peace, but only among believers. All right? 
Everybody else except Christians and Jews have to be annihilated. Why? Because they're idol worshippers. They're polytheists. The Christians are dubiously monotheists, but at least they're people of the book. And Jesus is represented not as being the son of God, but being a, a great prophet, the greatest prophet prior to Muhammad. Right? And the Jews are allowed to exist as well, because they're people of the book. At least they have some element of monotheism. But the Islamic argument is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament have been corrupted and transformed over the ages, which is, there's certainly some truth in that. All right? Remember that the Old Testament goes back to the time probably of an oral tradition which the Hebrews had when they were in Egypt. Right? But it doesn't get written down until after the Jews are released from Babylon, which is 600 years later. So no doubt those oral traditions change quite a bit. If you know the kids game telephone, that's what happens. And to some extent, um, there's going to be some element of that in Christian scripture as well. And not only do we have the difficulties of playing telephone, but we have the Gnostics, which means that we have a hell of a bad problem there. Right. So the tone of the Quran, there's no way to finesse that. There's no way to get out from under that. It's not like the tone of the New Testament. It is very militant. It is very warlike. Now, for my, to my mind, the icing on the cake here is found in a passage, uh, a surah, called Victory. And here the Prophet, talk, or Allah, through the Prophet, talks about doing the will of Allah, and that means participating in jihad. And this is the point at which apologists for Islam will say, see, he wants everybody to engage in a, in a spiritual struggle. And to be honest, he's right that he does. But that's not all, and that's not even primary. It says in the section called Victory that those of you who are lame or blind don't have to go on jihad. Okay. I can understand why the lame and the blind would be exempted from warfare. I don't understand why they would be exempted from spiritual pursuits. In other words, we got them cold there. That's the section you want to, because you'll hear, look, you don't, I mean, I've actually seen, because I, I, at various times I've worked, at, I've taught in the politics department and literature department, but in politics in particular, um, there are, I, I've actually seen in the same book, different essays. One essay tries to, just says that jihad is holy war. Another essay in the same book, talking about the same term, says no, it's a spiritual struggle. What that is is present-day propaganda. The fact of the matter is that uh, Islam is a, milita a military religion, and it started out as a military religion, and jihad uh, is certainly accurately represented as holy war. It may be more than that, but it certainly is not less. Right. So Islam, as a peaceful religion, that's a very dubious enterprise. And so don't, again, this is one of the advantages from doing something like reading the Quran. You can now actually participate in discussions about the Quran, which lots of Americans do, and they mostly don't know jack about it. 
you know, they heard something, they heard something, they heard from someone that was on Twitter. <laughs> right? And now they say, well, look, I have opinions about the Quran. Well, of course you do. You have opinions about relativity, too. You don't understand that as well. All right? Um, you've paid your dues, which means that you're entitled to have opinions, opinions that deserve some attention and respect. Most people's opinions about this do not. They're just a waste of time. Yeah. It's humorous to see, uh, especially modern liberals, going out of their way to defend uh, Islam, right. when Islam is the religion that is most unified in its opposition to almost everything that the left stands for. That's right. Uh, including homosexuality, uh, everything that, you know, they, they hate it all. Well, again, because it's non-Western, it gets a pass. All right. The left in the contemporary world is full of self-loathing and self-hatred. In other words, they hate the culture that's produced them and made them possible. I could explain to you why I think that, that works, but I don't have the time right now. The idea is that uh, intellectuals are a would-be ruling elite. In other words, they're a class in the Marxian sense. They have interests and they're trying to take state power. They do that by going to universities and then doing their best to delegitimize the society that makes them possible. In delegitimizing capitalism, Bernie Sanders just entered the race, what that means is that the capitalist elite, the money managers, aren't going to be in control of the state. People who are in control of the state are intellectuals, which is what they really want. Ever since Plato, intellectuals have had the fatal mistake of believing that they were the best suited to run society. The few times when intellectuals have shown that that is even close to being true, Right. You don't want a stupid leader, but you don't want an egghead. If you have a, an IQ of 150, you should not be in Washington. You should be in the lab, right, doing something useful with your brain. Really smart people make bad politicians on the whole. Why? Because I'm the smartest guy in the room. I don't need any help from you, and I'm not delegating anything. I supervise it all. I see all, and I know all. Also, because I'm so smart, so great, so wonderful, I'm always right. That means that we can't compromise, because that's stupid and not as good as my ideas. Um, look at the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. That's what this was. Uh, look at the presidency of John Adams, senior. All right. Um, yeah, he was a, maybe the smartest guy in America at the time. Nobody liked him because he constantly told people what he thought of them, <laughs> which wasn't very much. So, no, um, I don't want anybody with a two-digit IQ. I don't want anybody with 150 IQ. I'm looking for somebody 115, 120, reasonably intelligent, and a good talker. Right? That's the best you're going to get in a democratic regime. Right? Um, philosopher kings are a bad idea. Here's why. If a philosopher king were to run for president, all right, I wouldn't know um, him to look at him because I'm not a philosopher king. So. I wouldn't know it if somebody says he's a philosopher king. He knows the ultimate good, and I have to obey him in all things. Well, the problem is I got lots of people claiming to be a philosopher king who all say different stuff. What am I supposed to do then? Wash my hands of philosopher kings. If there were such a thing, no one would be able to recognize me. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. All right. All right, so here's the deal. Um, Islam is an important element in our culture and an important element in Western culture. Right. I think of this as 
the business end of monotheism. It's the spear point. And it's pointed at Eurasia. All right. If they could have, they would have overwhelmed their hinterland, which would be Western Europe, but they got stopped in that. All right. Now, what does Islam in, and I'll let you go with this idea, what does Islam in is 1492. All the money that used to flow into the Islamic world for being the middlemen in global trade, because they don't know about the new world, now it all flows into Western Europe, because they've been outflanked by the navigators. And what that means is, is that Portuguese can go around the bottom of Africa, all the way to India, and when they get there, they're going to blow up Islamic fleets and take control of the trade. They're going to do the same thing when they go to the New World and from the New World to China. Would it be accurate to say that before 1492, Christianity was not the dominant world religion? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, very much. Um, it's not even close to being the dominant world religion. If you looked at the at the world in the year one thousand, and you say a thousand, and you ask a thousand years from now, who do you expect to be in the driver's seat? Uh, the smart money would certainly be on the Chinese. Right? I mean, they had a continental-sized country from the very beginning. They were smart enough, like the Americans, to unify early and stay unified. They never experimented with different regimes of politics because when you have a country that big but no computers to run things with, what you need is a straight hierarchy from the top down. You get a, an emperor who's kind of God or has a mandate of heaven. And then you get the real people who run the society who are the mandarins, who are professional smart guys. I mean, it's certainly the best organized society in the world. After, I mean, and here's, here's something we're thinking about. In the history of the world, Places that are fragmented politically have to be unified religiously. The reason why is that the centrifugal forces always tend to break societies up. So, for example, if you have a whole bunch of petty little uh, principalities, as you have in India for most of its history, many of these principalities will speak different languages and will all have uh, different religious traditions, what holds them together all right, is Hinduism. That's why Buddhism gets chased out of India by the Hindu priests. Why? Because we need one religion. We can't have alternative religions. This is a big part of why they never make their peace with Islam as well. All right? um, also think of Western Europe. Western Europe is decentralized. It's broken up into little countries based upon uh, the distribution of German barbarian armies. Okay, what they need to hold them together is the church. Christianity is what holds the West together. On the other hand, uh, if you have a politically centralized operation, then the necessity of having religion tie up the loose ends just isn't there. This is why, because China is politically unified from the word go, China can have both Taoism and Buddhism and uh, Confucianism at the same time. Why? Because they don't need uh, social integration to be performed by their religion. The politics doesn't. Right? On the other hand, in places that are fragmented, you need social integration through religion. That's what happens in India. That's what happens in Europe. You know?
this is that kind of like present day America, how the government isn't reliant on people's religions? That's exactly right. Also, think about the Islamic world. What do people in Morocco have to do with people in Indonesia? The short answer is nothing. Right? What holds them together? They all know that all believers at the same time of the day are going to face in exactly the same direction and say the same prayers. Again, fragmentation requires religious consolidation. Political consolidation allows free reign for different religious beliefs. Yeah? So did China have like a separation of church and state? No, no. Uh, their politics was always backed up by religion. But different religious traditions, the mandarins, the elite, they were Confucians. And that was a big element in the center on, centering on the family. Uh, the Taoists were largely kind of nature mystics, and that was a peasant religion. And Buddhism comes in, and it's a proselytizing religion, at least initially. As a matter of fact, so is, is Hinduism at one point. Uh, and it expands from India into China. It's destroyed in India, but it flourishes in China. No, nobody in China that's a Confucian feels a need to kill the Buddhists. Why? I mean, as long as they sit there gazing at the navel, trying to get enlightenment, what do I care what they do? Right? So there's an inverse relationship between politics and religion. We need social cohesion. We need a way of integrating society. It's possible to do that on the basis of secular political laws. It's also possible to do that on the basis of religious tradition. But you need at least one. So that's something we're thinking about. And I'll finish with this. The main problem in the history of Latin America does not come from Europe or from America. The main problem in the history of Latin America is that after the Bolivarian revolutions in the 1810s and 1820s, they break away from Spain. But unlike North America, they don't have the ability, the far-sighted leadership, to unify. If Spanish-speaking Latin America, leave out everything but Brazil, if that had unified, that would be competition to the United States. But because the local elites couldn't make deals across borders, they all decided they're going to set up their own little fiefdoms, and that meant that the Americans could divide and conquer. Right. So unity and social integration important political and religious ideas. All right. So that's the Quran. Now, next class, we're going to do the Inferno, all right, which is the part everybody likes the best because hell is really interesting. All right. And then when we come back, we'll do on the same day the Purgatorio and Paradiso because it's not that much extra. All right. So I'll see. Uh, read the Hollander translation if you have it. That's the best. But... Um, if you don't have that, do what you, what you can do. And I'll see you all on Thursday.
I can't. I like their music. Yeah, no, it's really good, especially Thursdays. Yeah. Do you know if two people are sending it or one? I think because his email was announced. He announced something on Canvas.